Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode one forty-four. I hope you are all doing very well. And before we begin, let me see who all is here with us. I can see Varun Barahir, Crazy Brain, Lagerho, Online, Jasmine Patel, Kushi Rani, Ronak Siddhant, Rasing, Abhishek Rao. Do not want any label. Santosh, Dipesh, Gitu Parna, Sushant, Vansh. Hey. Ansh, Akshay, XP1101, Anish, Ramswarup, Abhishek, Pinky Kumari, Design, Tribe, Tarun, Yash, Smak, Saurabh, Khushro, Anushirwan, Sakul, VNT, Malik, Saurabh, Nikhil, Singh, Negi, YKX, Gamer, Alpha, GK, Vohum, Workout, Jai, Deeraj, Din, Sharma, Ram, Samir, Rishi, Chiching, Shriram, Fatty, Just8, Kamlesh, Singh, Varun, Adarsh, Vishal, Sushant, Dude, Sayan, Vaibhav, Mr. Giga, Child of India, Jubin, Korean, Biju, VNT, Max, Gituparna, Hindu, Tavi, Putra, Adi, Abhishek, Tejas, do not want any label, Bridges, Anon, and lots and lots of other people. I hope you're doing all doing well. Sketch with Sneha, Sushant, Malik, Boom Shankar, Boom, Mankaj, Indrajit, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. So uh, let's go into the questions as always. And uh, today I will take a few more history questions. These days it's all it's all been geopolitics, a lot of geopolitics. So let's take some history questions today. But uh, we will start with some questions about geopolitics, about what's happening right now. So question number one. Uh, it's by two people, Akshay and Shubham. Dr. Jayashankar openly criticized Quad partners for not endorsing India's map. Will the Quad reach its objectives if the West treats India in this manner? And what's your opinion about Dr. Jayashankar's recent statement about Quad, quad countries not respecting India's opinions and India's map while expecting India to accept their opinion and views on Russia-Ukraine conflict? So that's the way it's always been. The West sets the rules and India and the Eastern nations need to just abide by the rules and do whatever we are told to do, right? And uh, so they expect, so we know what the Quad is. The Quad is this grouping of four nations, which is India, the United States, Japan, and Australia. Now, you know what my favorite term these days is? It's Vassal state. So uh, Japan and Australia, as we know, are US Vassal states. Australia is essentially a US-owned corporation or company. It's owned by the US and Japan is under permanent US military occupation. So the Quad essentially is India and the US and a couple of US vassals. So the two nations that really matter are India and the US in the Quad. And in the Quad, and and the Quad is, well, it's viewed in a variety of ways. But uh, one of the ways that people view the Quad is that the Quad is an anti-China grouping. So the, the major threat in Asia to peace and security and stability is China. We all know that China is an expansionist nation with an imperialist mindset. It has uh, territorial disputes with almost everybody in the whole world, yes. And uh, and especially all of its neighbors. So it's it's a big problem, right? And uh, it's, it's a threat to China. I mean, China is a threat to, to Japan. It's a threat to Australia, it's a threat to India, and it's a threat to US hegemony. So, so these nations have come together and they work in a variety of ways together. And the overall 
well, objective seems to be to, to contain China in a way and to, you know, uh, safeguard each other's interests. Now, the Quad, like I said, it's India and the US grouping of nations. So they expect India to abide by what the US calls the so-called rules-based world order, which is the whims-based world order of the US. Whatever they decide today is the rule, is, is the rule, and we would all abide by it. So they expect India to fall in line with US foreign policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Ukraine-Russia conflict. They want India to condemn Russia and to oppose Russia and uh, to... to accede to all the sanctions that the West is has, has imposed on Russia and to support Ukraine in a variety of ways, yes. And India has steadfastly refused to do that. So, uh, so the Quad nations, uh, they are in disagreement with India, vis-a-vis -vis India's uh, foreign policy with respect to Russia and Ukraine, right? So, uh, and they have been pressurizing India. Uh, mostly the US has been doing so. And indirectly, implicitly, there is a you know, uh, an acceptance of the US stand from the perspective of Japan and Australia as well. So recently, I think Dr. Jaishankar was asked a question about the Quad or something like that. I don't know what the context was, but he said that uh, he he made the statement that the the those nations that don't even endorse India's map want us to have the same position as them in the Ukraine-Russia war. So he said that if if India does not meet the expectations. The, if India does not meet every expectations of the West, then it's fine. We are not bothered about it. Tough luck to the West. That's what Dr. Jaishankar said. And as we know, the US does not even accept India's map, right? The US is actively arming Pakistan. The US is actively bolstering Pakistan's military capabilities right now. Yesterday, the uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken he tweeted something. He tweeted that, uh, what did he say? He, he he tweeted condolences or support to India on the occasion of the of 2611, the anniversary of the Mumbai terrorist attack, which was carried out by Pakistan. And he tweeted out a message of support or condolences or whatever. And it's so hypocritical that on the one hand, they are opposing terrorism. And on the other hand, they are actively arming the one nation that is the world's epicenter of terrorism. Yeah, an, an outright terrorist regime whose only objective is to destroy India. So that's the kind of hypocrisy that the US has been indulging in essentially forever. And that's why there is a great deal of skepticism when it comes to India, the way India views the US and its pronouncements. Like I keep saying, focus on actions, not on words. The actions are like, we support India, we condemn terrorism. That's, that's the words. But the actions are that they are arming the terrorist nation. And obviously, they do, they do not even uh, accept India's uh, map of its territory. Right now, some portions of India's uh, northern regions, some portions are currently temporarily occupied by Pakistan and some by China. So if you look at the uh, official US maps, they show India in a truncated form. So they don't, don't even accept India's map, map, right? They don't endorse, they don't endorse India's map. But they want us to endorse their positions and accept their positions and have the identical position as them in a variety of things, right? So that's what Dr. Jashankar spoke about. And it's, it's good that he clarified this, that uh, the West cannot expect India to accede to all their demands and to meet every expectation that they have of us. It's not going to happen.
we have to work in in a together in some kind of manner that is mutually beneficial but don't expect us to fall in line fall in line with your demands it's not not going to happen so yeah that's what this was about it's a good statement okay psr3 and shaheen have uh, this question china ghosts india from the first indian ocean forum meeting what's happening china recently hosted the first meeting of the indian ocean region whatever on development and cooperation with 19 countries according to reports china did not india invite the major indian ocean region india and this is part of china's strategy to limit india's influence in the region how can india respond to china's action okay let's take a look at okay let's take a look at first of all the indian ocean region yeah geographically let's understand what this region is so this is the indian ocean region when whenever we look at, take a look at the map of india and its uh, surrounding regions we are looking at the indian ocean region so the indian subcontinent dominates the indian ocean region as you can see it goes it it protrudes thousands of kilometers into the indian ocean region it dominates the entire uh, region and the uh, other nations in this region are obviously the subcontinental nations pakistan sri lanka myanmar bangladesh maldives etc uh, of course we also have malaysia and thailand and indonesia we have australia over here we have various uh, island nations like mauritius and seychelles which you are not able to see here but they are there we have madagascar and the entire eastern coast of africa and also the uh, uh, the nations the eastern nations in the arabian peninsula like oman yemen maybe even uae if you want and a country like djibouti perhaps yeah so this is the indian ocean region and this that, that's what this is all about right now what happened what are we talking about china and all that so china recently had a meeting with a bunch of nations yeah let's put a news report on the screen so 19 countries attended china for china forums indian ocean region meet and india was absent india was reportedly not invited according to informed sources yeah so which nations did china invite i'm sure there's a list somewhere here otherwise i can list it out so the chinese invited uh, the indian subcontinent nations like sri lanka pakistan bangladesh myanmar the maldives etc it also invited nations like indonesia and iran and uh, other subcontinental nations that are not uh, they don't have a coastline like nepal and afghanistan then you had oman as well then you had seychelles mauritius and madagascar the island nations and then nations along the south, the african eastern coast like djibouti kenya mozambique tanzania and south africa and australia as well and apparently there were representatives of three international organizations also i don't know which organizations these are and the chinese chose not to invite india according to so, so what they are calling informed sources so uh and this this uh, whatever this was this uh, event was hosted by lu luo jiaohui the former vice foreign minister and the former ambassador to india so uh, what's happening the chinese obviously have geopolitical ambitions in the indian ocean region of late of the in the past decade or so their navy has been active more active in the indian ocean region let's go back to the map so uh so and they they uh, as we know they have uh, acquired certain naval bases in this region one is the sri lankan port of hambantota here it is hambantota which the chinese have acquired on a 99 year, year lease 
this was done when mr rajapaksa was in power yeah it's always easy to do such things when a corrupt person is in power i mean there are allegations that mr rajapaksa was um, was allegedly corrupt and very much pro china so one such asset is rahmandota the other asset is the pakistani port of gwadar over here which is close to the iranian port of chabahar and the third one is the uh, is is a naval station or whatever it is in djibouti djibouti city which is at this strategic choke point between the gulf of aden and the gulf and, and the red sea yeah so the chinese would like to start dominating in the future the indian ocean region now as we know their superpower ambitions have recently encountered significant setbacks yeah it's the economy is not growing and lots of other things have happened but they still will try to do everything they can to keep on pushing those ambitions so they want to create some some kind of understanding or cooperation between all the nations of this region and exclude india because the major nation in the indian ocean region is india india considers um if you listen to the words of the indian foreign ministry and other government officials india considers these uh, the indian ocean region to be its so called strategic backyard and china wants to encroach into this region so that's what's happening it's interesting that nations like australia that are part of the quad chose to attend this meeting and obviously nations like sri lanka and pakistan obviously it's to be expected so that is what is happening right that's what's happening now we also have to understand that there are other organizations in the indian ocean region one is the indian ocean rim association of nations which is uh, which is essentially led by by india so this is a nation this is an association that has i think 23 member countries yeah this association comprises 23 member states and nine dialogue partners and china is one of the dialogue partners yeah and uh, some organizations have research uh, have uh, observer status so this is essentially led by india to a certain extent the first summit was held in 2017 in jakarta the second one was held in abu dhabi in the uae in 2019 and since then this organization doesn't seem to have been very active at least no summits have taken place of course as we know we had the coronavirus pandemic which started in late 2019 and after that things did not well uh, the entire world order was disrupted so maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not happened so china seems to be attempting to create a a parallel parallel kind of organization which is a rival to the indian ocean rim association yep so that is the geopolitical tug of war that we are witnessing and that's what this was all about so this organization the, the indian ocean rim association is to a large extent led by india so that is the geopolitical situation the chinese are still not giving up i mean why would they give up yeah they want to um, they would like to have more naval bases they would like to re- restart the what they call it what do they call it the uh, maritime silk route uh, initiative that they created in conjunction with the BRI initiative their belt and road initiative whatever they call it yeah so the, so that's what's happening so china or so on the one hand we have brics on the one hand we have brics brazil russia india china and south africa in 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 brics there are three major nations that really count india russia china and lots of nations are now applying to join brics so brics could be greatly expanded by 2025 2026 but for brics to be a viable organization an organization that actually works 
for that to happen india and china have to work together india and china have to find some common ground to work together if india and china are they continue to have this extremely greatly adversarial relationship then brics is a non starter brics is like you know it's not going to work and yet we are seeing china uh, doing all these things you know trying to intrude into the indian ocean region trying to create a parallel organization in parallel to what india has created so india and china are not going to be what what uh, would colloquially be called friends india and china are going to be rivals even if they can manage their differences to some extent india and china will remain rivals as long as china occupies tibet like i've said in the past the real solution to the china india issue rivalry enmity whatever you want to call it is tibet and china knows this very well if tibet becomes free again then india and china will not no longer have any enmity india and china are enemies because there is a shared border which is currently undemarcated because china has steadfastly refused to demarcate the border and china has been indulging in all kinds of provocative actions along the border in other places as well and now this is another i would consider this a provocation i'm i'm sure the chinese have a legitimate right and interest in expanding their footprint in various parts of the world but as we know the chinese peaceful rise is anything but a peaceful rise so india will have to keep a very close eye on chinese activities it's good that australia was part of it australia is also part of the quad so they can keep an eye on, on what's happening within this chinese uh, initiative this meeting of the indian ocean region whatever it is yeah yeah so we will have to keep a close eye on this and india and china are the relationship is not improving uh, anywhere as much as people would expect it to yeah recently mr modi and mr xi they interacted briefly in bali in, during the g20 summit so there seems to be a, a minor thaw at least the two leaders are now talking to each other greeting each other you know uh, so the relations really nose dived after the uh, the galwan incident in which the chinese provoked the indian soldiers uh, 20 indian soldiers died and i don't know how many chinese died 40 60 80 100 whatever lots of chinese died and uh, yeah so the relations have been really bad since then now there seems to be a slight thaw <clears throat> but and yet india simply cannot trust china the chinese would like to encroach in all spheres of indian influence and and essentially try to erode india's geopolitical influence so that's the situation right now and it's not a big surprise that this has happened okay daniel nicholson says if we could add new member states in brics would it be feasible to militarize brics like nato if so this could lessen could this lessen temporarily for about two decades frictions between members like india and china by increasing military cooperation as india needs peace time for at least another decade to push for the 10 trillion dollar gdp mark see uh let's talk about nato nato is dominated by just one nation what is nato it's the north atlantic treaty organization it's it's the us and the nations of western europe so in nato there's only one major power there's only one major pole it's the us nato is us is the us and its vassal states in europe in europe there is only one real power which is the us it's not germany it's not france it's not italy it's not spain it's not something else in western europe there's only one real power military and economic power which is the us so nato is entirely led by the us nato is a proxy for the us that's why 
and and everything that ha- happens in nato is dictated by the us whatever economic policies they have whatever military policies they have the us has nuclear weapons on the territory of several uh, european nations yeah which are all members of nato so it's entirely led by the us and that's why it's a military alliance in the case of brics we have three major nations india china russia and india and china don't have a good relationship it's been a terrible relationship india and china have gone to war twice 1962 1967 62 the chinese won 67 india win uh, india won and you're not taught about it yeah china and russia nearly went to war in the 1960s the usuri river clashes the the russians the soviets had decided to nuke china and the, it's the americans that saved china that border dispute is right now resolved but it will be reopened by the chinese when they deem that the time is right so china and russia don't have the best relationship they are co- cooperating and collaborating right now because they need to but it's not a great relationship so in brics we have three centers of power brics is not dominated by one by one single nation it's uh, the chinese would like to dominate brics but if india and russia work together then they can counterbalance china and brics so within brics there is all this friction and india and china are essentially enemy nations so you cannot have a military alliance within brics it's simply not feasible how do you expect it's like expecting india and pakistan to have a military alliance and in the, in the, in the militaries of india and pakistan to co- co- cooperate and collaborate in a variety of ways it's simply a non starter it's not going to happen it simply can't happen so that way similarly like that india and china simply cannot work together in a from a military perspective there is zero interoperability between the militaries of india and china they are designed to oppose each other so it's not possible it's not going to happen it's even if you add new member states or whatever the three major power centers are going to be india russia and china yeah you can add saudi arabia to it saudi arabia has very good relations with india and even china but india and saudi relations are very good so but saudi arabia is not a major military power they are a us vassal state right now they would like to end that sort of uh, relationship they would like to become more independent so all sort of uh, such uh, aspirations are right now in play from various nations indonesia wants to join brics uh, turkey would like to join brics one hears and there are many other nations yeah but even if you expand it it's not going to be a military alliance it's going to be an economic alliance at best so yeah because of the india china relationship the the hostile relationship and the and the bad history it is impossible to militarize brics it's impossible to turn it into a military alliance that can only happen when uh, this coalition of nations or any coalition of nations is led by only one nation then you can have a military alliance so brics is not going to be a military alliance as far as i can see it's simply not possible okay descended of rigvedic clans says please discuss the southern arc paper it disproves many pseudo claims of uh, western academia propaganda it disproves many things okay let's discuss and and the other question is by vv the southern arc paper by david reich has challenged the step okay the step as the homeland of the proto indo european languages 
of the Proto-Indo-European language. Do you think this will lead researchers to consider the out-of-India theory or perhaps other theories as more convincing? Does Dr. Niraj Rai's research on uh, Indian origin of R1A have any consequences? Will it have any consequences on settling the Proto-Indo-European homeland debate? Okay. What is this paper and what is the debate about? So the claim, the debate is about the origin of the Indo-European people and their languages, the, the Indo-European languages. The Indo-European languages are a huge set of languages. I think more than two or three billion people in the world speak Indo-European languages. And it is hypothesized that it, these this entire family of languages originated in the distant past from just one language. And as people spread across the Eurasian continent, these different languages evolved out of that because these people were no longer in touch. So the languages evolved differently and eventually they became the entire family of languages that we see today, the Indo-European languages. And there are two theories, obviously, when it comes to India, out of India and the Aryan invasion, migration, tourism, picnic theory. So the dominant theory, which your textbooks will teach you and which your, which your esteemed professors will teach you, is that India was invaded by white people, white-skinned people called the Aryans about 3,500 years ago. It's about the origin of India. It's about the origin of you and your languages and, and your culture. That's what the entire question is about. So the dominant theory is that is the dominant theory is that Hinduism and Sanskrit are foreign to India. They represent an invasive force, a hegemonic, oppressive, patriarchal, misogynistic, evil force. So Hinduism and Sanskrit are the, the culture of evil invaders. That's what you are taught. And that's what the entirety of the Indian uh, you know, uh, citizenry is, is made to believe because of the education system. So now, um, so initially there was this, uh, this uh, hypothesis that there was an invasion. Then they could find absolutely zero evidence of any invasion. So then they changed the hypothesis to, to claim that it was a migration. It was not an invasion, it was a migration. And yet there is no evidence to even prove a migration. So then, so they are stuck right now. So uh, the one of the hypotheses, so what happened is that in recent times, in the, in the 21st century, in the first decade, in the second decade, they began, uh, archaeologists began to find evidence of an invasion, but an invasion in Europe, a very rapid and drastic and brutal invasion of Europe from the east. And uh, as a result of this invasion, you had the sudden change in the cultural, uh, in the culture that is represented in the archaeological record. And you had a sudden abrupt change in the genetics of Europe. So the original European genetics, male genetics disappeared and were entirely replaced by this in the genetics of these invaders who came from the east. These invaders who came into Europe, they came from the East. Which part of the East? They say it's a Central Asian steppe. Let's take a look at the Central Asian steppe. What is the Central Asian steppe? Let's go to the map. <clears throat> so they found that, see, this entire region is Central Asia. From uh, Eastern Ukraine up to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, all that stuff. The uh, north of the Black Sea, the Caspian coast, the Caspian Sea coast, and up to yeah, up to up to Kazakhstan, etc. That's essentially Central Asia. That's the entire Central Asian steppe. It's just grassland. That's where nothing else grows there. So that that region is called the Central Asian steppe. So uh, 
it's clear that these invaders who came into europe and uh, obliterated the european male genetics and replaced the male genetics with their genetics they came from the east and it was believed that they came from the central asian steppe so this this then became the dominant theory and, and these people they were given the term the name of yamnaya it's a russian word which means pit pit grave or something so that's not what they called themselves that's what today's archaeologists and historians call these people the yamnaya invaders of europe and it is said that uh, that the yamnaya also were were responsible for invading india and maybe they represent the aryan invaders the thing is that the yamnaya have a different set of genes i mean they have almost the same genetics obviously but the dominant patrilineal lineage haplogroup is r1b whereas the dominant uh, patrilineal lineage in india is this is the sister haplogroup r1a so uh, the yamnaya hypothesis doesn't seem to make much sense when it comes to india because we have very little uh, so called yamnaya genetics in india uh but yeah that's what it was so now there is this new paper that has come up so let's put the paper on the screen if i can find it one second e um where is it Just give me a second. All right, here's the paper. Let's put it on the screen. So this paper is called "The Genetic History of the Southern Arc: A Bridge Between West Asia and Europe." It is uh, the author. It's, it's got a bunch of authors, including Joseph Lazaridis, uh, other people, and in and obviously David Reich. So a uh, structured abstract. what does it talk about so let's take a look at this uh, the, the abstract so that you understand for thousands of years humans have moved across the southern arc the area bridging europe through anatolia and west asia we report ancient dna data from 727 individuals of this region over the past 11000 years which we co-analyzed and with the published archaeogenetic record to understand the origins of the people we focused on the chalcolithic and bronze ages about 7000 to 3000 years ago when indo-european language speakers first appeared so there's an assumption that you find a bunch of uh, skeletons with a certain uh, kind of genetics and the assumption is that they are the indo-european language speakers this is an assumption there is no evidence because there is no correlation definite correlation between language and genes i am speaking a foreign language it's foreign to me i am speaking english but because i speak english it doesn't mean my my genetics have changed and they've become british or or english genetics my genetics are indian subcontinent genetics that's what i am right so and today english is one of the dominant languages in india so just because somebody speaks a certain language doesn't mean that that genetics are going to reflect the genetics of the place from which that language originated so this assumption is deeply deeply faulty so they have found a bunch of genetics in certain places and they claim that this is the set of genes that is that corresponds to indo-european language speakers uh then the rational is the genetic data are relevant for understanding linguistic evolution because they can identify movement driven opportunities for language spread we investigated how the cultural changing language of the uh, the the changing ancestral landscape of the southern arc as reflected in dna corresponds to the structure inferred by linguistics which links anatolian that is hittite and luvian languages with and indo-european that is greek armenian latin and sanskrit languages they had to put sanskrit but they put at the end as twin daughters of a proto-indo-anatolian language the results 
Step pastoralists of the Yamnaya culture initiated a chain of migrations linking Europe in the west to China and India in the east. Some people across the Balkans about five to four and a half thousand years ago traced almost all their genes to this expansion. Step migrants soon admixed with locals, creating a tapestry of diverse ancestry from which speakers of the Greek, Paleo-Balkan and Albanian languages arose. This is entirely speculative, but because once again, you cannot claim that a certain set of genes is correlated with a language or, or a set of languages. They should be talking about the genetics of the Yamna and the expansion and the migration or whatever they found. They, it, it's just wrong to correlate that with genetics, no, with, with languages. Anyhow, let's go to the conclusion. All ancient Indo-European speakers can be traced back to the Yamnaya culture. Okay, that's the conclusion they made. Whose southward expansions into the southern arc left a trace in the DNA of the Bronze Age people of the region. However, the link connecting the Proto-Indo-European language speaking Yamnaya with the speakers of the Anatolian languages was in the highlands of West Asia, the ancestral region shared by both. And this is the genetic history of the Southern Ark. This is what they, they claim. So the, the analysis that they have done is genetic analysis. They have done analysis of ancient DNA. And on the basis of the analysis of the ancient DNA and the results they found, they are making... They are, making uh, drawing conclusions about the spread of languages and culture that is completely wrong obviously they've put a caveat somewhere in the paper that it is not entirely going to be you know the correlation is not uh, causation and so on and so forth and uh, languages are and genetics are not entirely correlated they they have made that they've put that caveat in there to cover their backsides but uh, overall they're making the claim of the transmission of language and culture through these genetics for which we don't have any real evidence yeah Anyhow, uh, but what's uh, interesting about this paper, let me go to a lecture by David Reich and put that on the screen because that will uh, help you understand better what conclusion uh, they have drawn from this. Yeah. So thus far, like I said, it was believed that the Yamnaya originated in, in Central Asia, the Central Asian steppe. Uh, so what are they claiming? So this, uh, so the southern arc is an area divided geographically between West Asia and Europe, which we define as spanning the culturally entangled regions of Anatolia and its neighbors in both Europe and West Asia, uh, Cyprus, Armenia, the Levant, Iraq, and Iran. So what they are saying is that now the Aryan invasion or the origin, so essentially the claim they are making, is that the origin of the Indo-European people is not in the Central Asian steppe, it's in the so-called Southern Arc, which extends up to Iran. Yeah? So, so, so understand this. Let's, let's put the map on the screen and understand what this means. We have always been told that the white-skinned Aryans came from Eastern Europe or Central Asia, right? That, that story has been around since the days of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Max Müller. We have always been told that these are white-skinned people who came from this region, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. Now, based on the genetic evidence, David Reich and his team are saying that no, the Aryan invaders, they originated in the so-called Southern Arc, which is from Anatolia, which is the major part of Turkey, all the way up to Iran. So now the Aryans, they came from this region, not from Central Asia. I have always been saying for, for the longest time that 
what is the ancestry of the Yamnaya? Where did they come from? So now they are attempting to answer that question. And the claim is that they came from Iran. Now my question will be, where did they come from before that? Obviously, they did not spring out of the soil in Iran or, or Anatolia. They must have come from somewhere else before that. So this is a story. This is a this is research that's in progress. The my major the one of the major criticisms is that they have not they have completely disregarded Indian genetics. Now we are finding genetics. I mean, um, genetic information from India as well. The Swat Valley, the Indus Valley, the, the Saraswati Sindhu Valley region and so on. Um, the so-called Indus periphery uh, uh, genetics that they found in other places, but which are closely related to Indian genetics and so on. It doesn't, uh, as far as I've seen, there is no, uh, th those pieces of genetic evidence have not been considered uh, while, as far as I know, in, in this paper. So what needs to really be done is that the major population center in the Asian in ancient world was India. It was India. And yet none the Indian genetic component is not looked at at all. So in the future, what needs to be done, and this has to be done by Indian geneticists, is that they need to uh, they need to sequence more ancient genetic data from India. We have so many ancient samples sitting in museums. I know most of them will be contaminated contaminated because our uh, archaeologists don't know how to handle ancient bones and all. But I'm sure we will find new sets of bones, remains, ancient remains. We found some in Sinauli. We will find more in the Saraswati Sindhu region. We need to sequence the DNA from there. We, we will find ancient DNA. Some of it will be preserved. So that needs to be brought into the picture to understand the origins of, of uh, the people of India and the in, in, in the indo-european speaking people what they call the indo-european speaking people so this uh, this paper why is it important because now it it uh, changes the uh, focus of the origin of the indo-european people from central asia to the so called southern arc which now includes iran now iran is geographically you may not see it this way because you have been taught geography from a certain perspective. But I Iran is geographically part of this Indian subcontinent. It is, uh, if you if you go west from, from uh, let's say, Rajasthan, there is absolutely nothing in, in, in your way, like mountains or something, that will stop you from reaching Iran. It's just one continuous expanse. So Iran, I mean, even if you see my... Uh, my podcast with Dr. Neeraj Rai, there is a podcast which I have on this channel. He also refers to Iran as being part of the Indian subcontinent. So if the origin of the Indo-European Indo people is from Iran, there could be a significant linkage with the Saraswati Sindhu region as well. So all of this has been neglected. So this is obviously a work in progress, but it's important because now the claim is going to be that the... Uh, the Indo-European people, which which is colloquially called the Aryans, the Aryan invaders, the Aryan invaders did not originate from Central Asia or Eastern Europe. They originated in the southern arc, which is Turkey, uh, Anatolia, and Iran. And in the future, when more evidence emerges, I'm sure the the focus will move further eastwards into the Indian subcontinent. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, and so so it's still a work in progress. But that is what this paper is about. So now even David Reich and his team are admitting that, uh, yeah, the origin of the Yamnaya invaders who invaded Iran is in the southern arc, which includes Iran. And in the future, let's see where, where it takes us. 
so yeah that's the deal that's what this paper is about i have not gone into the specifics in great detail but that is the overall uh the conclusions of the paper the claims that it makes okay not a gamer says how similar are old persian and sanskrit as they both had a common ancestor the assumption assumption made in this question is that old persian and sanskrit had a common ancestor so where did this assumption come from i don't do not really know maybe it's something that is taught in textbooks and our eminent professors and teachers tell us this let's talk about how similar are old persian and sanskrit so how do we find out um um about sanskrit okay and persian so one of the best evidences of old persian is the behistun inscription uh behistun the behistun inscription is a very famous inscription by the persian king darai darais the great and this place called behistun which is now called behistun it was earlier called bhagasthan in persian the old persian language in that language the name of this place was bhagasthan it is now called behistun so let's take a look at the behistun inscription and try to see if it has any similarities with sanskrit you may all think that you don't know sanskrit sanskrit is some very strange and and difficult language that's not the case you all speak some sanskrit if you speak an indian language it is guaranteed that you use a lot of sanskrit vocabulary so so you all actually know sanskrit not not spoken sanskrit not um uh not conversational sanskrit but you do know sanskrit vocabulary so now let's take a look at the behistun inscription let's take a look at the first uh, paragraph or whatever it is so this is in the cuneiform script now what does it say if you read it out it says adam darayavaush akshayathiya vajraka kshayathiya kshayathiya nam kshayathiya parshaya kshayathiya dahyunam vishtaspasya putra arsamahya napa hakshamanashya tatiya so so this sounds like like corrupted sanskrit it sounds like you take sanskrit and you mangle it up and you mispronounce some words and that's what it sounds like so if you were to speak it in proper sanskrit it would say aham darayavaush kshatriya vajraka kshatriya kshatriya nam kshatriya parsheya kshatriya dasyunam vishtaspasya putra arsamasya napa hakshamanishya tatiya what does it mean aham darayavaush means i am darayavaush kshatriya vajraka kshatriya means we know what kshatriya means in india but for for the persians it meant king so kshatriya vajraka means great king i am darayavaush the great king kshatriya kshatriya nam means king of kings kshatriya parsheya means the king of persia kshatriya das dahyunam means the 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 king of the dasyu people other other people who i rule my vassals yes uh the which means which means the king of other kings vishtaspasya putra means i am the putra the son of vishtaspa arshamahya napa means i am the grandson of arsha hakshamanishya tatiya means i am i belong to the dynasty of hakshamanish right now let's take a look at, at this further darayavaus kshayatya mana he says mana pita vishtaspa vishtaspasya pita arshama arshamasya pita aryaramna aryaram 
आर्यरमणस्य पिता चिष्पिश चिष्पिश चिष्पिशस्य पिता हक्षामनिश एंड सो ऑन सो ही इज रिकॉर्डिंग हिज लिनिएज ही सेज माय पिता माय फादर वाज विष्टस्प विष्टस्पस फादर पिता वाज अर्षमा अर्षमा फादर वाज आर्यरमणा एंड सो ऑन एंड सो फॉर्थ so he speaks about his entire lineage his the lineage lineage of his dynasty of his ancestors starting from the emperor hakshamanish the founder of the hakshamanish uh, dynasty the achaemenid dynasty so as you can see this is all written in old persian if you know sanskrit or even if you know hindi or any indian language you will understand to a certain extent what is being said over here that is the interesting part so uh so now the the question is which came first which language came first did old old sanskrit old persian come first did uh, sanskrit come first or are these two languages sister languages and they descend from an older language these are the questions right now if you look at the behistun inscription you will find that it sounds like broken or corrupted or mangled sanskrit it sounds like an apabhrancha language of sanskrit what are apabhrancha languages these are descendant languages of sanskrit these are corrupted forms of sanskrit so today's languages they uh, today's modern indian languages the so called what are classified by linguists as indo aryan languages these languages are descendants of the old prakrit languages and the prakrit languages are descended from sanskrit right and pali is one of those prakrit languages so so and if you look at old persian it sounds like a prakrit language or or an apabhrancha language so it is clear it is clear i mean i am sure lots of linguists will disagree and i don't care what they say i don't care what they say yeah but it is clear that this language old persian is an apabhrancha of sanskrit which means a bunch of sanskrit speakers migrated out of india they settled down in persia and over several centuries the language changed it became corrupted that's what happens that's how languages have evolved in india so old persian is an apabhrancha it's a daughter language of sanskrit and you can see it sounds it looks and sounds quite similar you can actually if you know sanskrit or if you know any indian language you will actually understand much of what darayavas was saying two and a half thousand years ago right so you can see the similarities so the question is how similar are old persian and sanskrit they are quite similar old persian and sanskrit are uh, the, the the difference between them is like the difference between portuguese and spanish kind of uh, to some extent the, like the difference between english british english and american english the pronunciations are different some words are the words are more or less the same actually so in the case of old persian the pronunciations are are different instead of sa you have ha and some words are mangled the kshatriya becomes kshatiya and so on but overall you can understand what the rai was saying you don't need to know persian you just need to know sanskrit and you will understand everything that the rai was was saying in this inscription so that's the answer very similar languages old persian was a descendant of sanskrit not a sister language they did not both have a common ancestor the ancestor of old persian was sanskrit itself that is the deal all right so that is the answer to the question
Okay, Akshay says, what are your views on Graham Hancock and his latest Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse? And YK says, have you watched Graham Hancock's Ancient Apocalypse Netflix series? What do you think of it? I hope future seasons of this will cover ancient India as well. Okay, so I recently did go ahead and watch this uh, series. So I have spoken about Graham Hancock before. Uh, I think he is an important scholar and researcher in history, in ancient history. Um, he puts forth the perspective or the or the idea, and based on a lot of evidence, that uh, human history is not what we are taught it is. It's much older than what we are taught. And uh, so he puts forth a different narrative based on different uh, perspective, not narrative perspective, based on genuine evidence. But some of his claims obviously seem a little far-fetched. I mean, one of the claims that he made is that um, there was a, like like the title says, ancient apocalypse that happened about 12, 13,000 years before today, um, called the Younger Dryas event. And now we have found evidence that this actually happened. This actually happened. It was an apocalyptic calamitous event, most likely caused by a meteor strike or a strike of a comet or, or multiple fragments of a comet or meteor. They have found evidence of this now. Uh, there is a, a, a meteor uh, um, buried under the ice in Greenland that they found, which corresponds to this date. And there's other evidence as well. So yes, many of his claims are actually uh, based in, in facts and they have been corroborated. So he should be taken seriously. So And now he has come up with this series called Ancient Apocalypse. And I went ahead and watched it. It's seven or eight episodes, all about 28, 30 minutes long. So what do I think of this? So let's first put uh, put this on the screen, the IMDB uh, page for that uh, series, Ancient Apocalypse. And let's take a look. So, so it's uh, pretty well reviewed. It's got a 7.7 .7 out of 10 rating. As you can see, it seems to, people seem to like it. Let's take a look at the episode guide so that we can speak for, further about this. So episode one is about a flood. Uh, Graham Hancock travels to Indonesia to a place called Gudang Panang or something to investigate a megalithic pyramid. So yes, there is a pyramid there that seems to date back to, its origins date back to about 23, more than 20,000 years before today. And so that once again forces us to re-examine history that if, uh, if a structure is more than 20,000 years old, we have to revisit the way we look at history. That in the past, first of all, in the past when the Ice Age was in full force, the sea levels were significantly lower and many land masses existed that are now submerged. For instance, the whole of Indonesia was a massive gigantic landmass connected to Asia, connected to India. Yeah. Today, it's all a bunch of islands. At that time, it was a landmass. And there's so much that has been lost and it's it's submerged under the sea. So yeah, that's, that's what this was about. Then there is a uh, then he goes to Mexico. There are pyramids in Mexico, ancient pyramids. There is the tradition of Quetzalcoatl, the civilizing hero. Yeah, that's what's mentioned here, who came after a big flood. So there is this flood, flood myth everywhere in, in various parts of the world, which speaks about a great flood that destroyed, almost destroyed the world. And then things, uh, and then uh, humanity started again after that. Then he goes to Malta, where there are these megalithic temples, one of which is called Gigantia and so on. He speaks about that. It's orientation with the star Sirius. And all that he speaks about that. Uh, then he goes to uh, the Bahamas, the Bimini structure, and uh, he shows that uh, the, over there also there was the, 
much of it was above water, what is now submerged under the water. And there is a massive megalithic structure over there called the Bimini something or the other. Then he goes to Gobekli Tepe in, in uh, Anatolia, where you have this 11,000-year-old uh, uh, structure or... or, or uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a megalithic structure in in Gobeti Tepe, and it's not alone. There are a bunch of other structures around it, which date back to almost 12,000 years ago. So once again, and and these were apparently deliberately buried for some reason. So he speaks about that over there. Um, then he goes to North America. There's a serpent mound. He speaks about how Native American culture has been systematically destroyed and erased, and very little of it survives now. And yet some of it survives, like the Serpent Mound, which which once again is aligned with certain uh, celestial mm -hmm. events, like the solstices and all that. Then he goes to Turkey, where there are certain underground cities, which is very interesting, which could have been bunkers designed to survive some kind of apocalyptic event. And he, then he goes to North America, where you have the Channel Scablands, which uh, seems to be a massive geographical terrain, which was created by an enormous flood. Mm -hmm. At, maybe at the end of the last ice age, maybe the flooding happened because of a meteor, meteor strike on ice sheets and all that. So uh, I watched the entire thing and I find, see, all of it is interesting. Definitely interesting. He makes, makes some very good points. But his major thesis is extremely flawed. His major thesis, his major central claim is that there was one single ancient civilization before the before the great flood which seems to before the younger dryas event which is about 12 13000 years before today so his major central claim is that before this event the younger dryas event there was one single advanced civilization in the world and after the younger dryas event and the flooding or whatever happened then this one culture advanced culture somehow somehow survived to some extent and they sent civilizing heroes to various parts of the world and that's how you have the uh, the tradition of Quetzalcoatl in, in Central America and Osiris in Egypt and various other civilizing figures who come from nowhere and civilize the people, teach them how to do agriculture and teach them culture and laws, give them laws and all that. In one of the... So his claim is that there was just one advanced civilization. I don't know why that claim is being made. Why were there not seven or eight different advanced civilizations before the Younger Dryas event? I mean, the Earth is a huge planet. There are so many different continents and land masses. So why only one advanced civilization? That sounds very Abrahamic, to have just one god or one advanced civilization that, that later gave civilization to the whole world to the whole world after the world was destroyed uh, during the uh, or, or, or put uh, thrown into turmoil because of the Younger Dryas uh, event. So that is one claim that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why keep on insisting on just one advanced civilization that civilized the whole world later? That sounds very much like the white savior narrative, that the white people went and saved everybody and civilized everybody. So that claim that is being made has no basis in fact. The other, uh, All the other evidence that Graham Hancock shows us, it is actual archaeological evidence. The interpretations are all subjective, obviously, but the central claim is not based in any evidence at all. It has no factual basis. It's just something that he seems to believe. The second thing which I did not like is that there is no mention of India. India is the oldest civilization, the civilization that the entire world knows of. 
it's the oldest continuously existing civilization in the world and the oldest known civilization in the world that dates back almost 10000 years and maybe much most likely much it's much older than that graham hancock studiously avoids india he uh, none of the episodes covers india and uh, in one of the episodes he speaks about uh, the the seventh episode about turkey in which he goes to cappadocia and other places he speaks uh, he says that in the past there was a, once again there's a there's a lag all right this seems to be <laughs> lag buffering let it return and then we'll talk about this is it still buffering seems to be a lag 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 <clears throat> now better is it now better somebody is saying now better okay i think it is better now and i'm going to continue so the thing about graham hancock is that he completely avoids india which is incredible it's an enormous omission he also entirely omits africa there is nothing in africa africa had its own culture its own civilizations its own kingdoms and empires graham hancock completely ignores africa he completely ignores india as well in the seventh episode which is about uh, turkey he refers to zoroastrianism as the world's oldest religion he speaks about the zoroastrian or or persian tradition of the first human being called yima y i m a yima who then civilized he he refers to yima as a civilizing hero while the persian yima is nothing but the rigvedic yama which we now call yamaraj so in this in, in the indian rigvedic in the vedic tradition the first human being was yama actually there were two human beings twins yama and yami 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 is was the twin sister of yama and these two siblings were the children of surya the sun yeah so that is the uh, tradition that's the uh, that's the vedic tradition and the persians also followed this tradition because they were they came out of india so in persia also they have the tradition of yima they don't call him yama they call him yima so graham hancock speaks about this he refers to yima as a civilizing hero and he says that zoroastrianism is the oldest possibly the oldest religion in the world he totally sidesteps the fact that it all came out of india so these are there are major holes in in graham hancock's perspective maybe it's deliberate he completely ignores the largest continent in the world africa nothing there and he completely ignores the oldest civilization in the world india so and and lots of the many of the claims he makes are based on on leaps of imagination and uh, yeah so so much of his work is interesting it is certainly important but uh, his conclusions and his claims are many of them are fantastical his claim of an ancient civilization one single ancient civilization which was very advanced it's it's based on no fact or data at all yeah and and clearly even though he is open minded he is married to an indian lady etc indian origin lady and he speaks about all these things he 
says that the archaeologists and the historians have been misleading us and they have this very dogmatic notion of things. But he himself seems to exhibit the same tendencies of, of dogmatism, of avoiding India and Africa and all that. And, and many of the conclusions he draws are not really based in facts. So that's the kind of mixed review I would offer I would offer to you about Graham Hancock and his work and especially about this uh, new series that he has come up with. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's it's inter- interesting to watch, but I was really surprised to see that there's no mention of Africa or India at all, nothing at all. So clearly there is some either either he is not focused on these regions, he's only focused on America and some other places mm-hmm. or maybe this, there's some kind of bias. But as a researcher who is interested in the in the ancient world and who has spent decades researching what the historians have been hiding from us how can you how is it possible that you never ever tried to in, in investigate the history of india so yeah there's something i don't know fishy about this i don't know <laughs> so definitely is somebody we should take seriously to a certain extent some of his work is indeed important it helps us uh, plug certain holes in in the record of history in how we understand history but yeah, there are major problems with Graham Hancock's work. So that's my review of specifically this series, Ancient Apocalypse. Saurabh says, how ancient is Judaism? So Judaism is the religion of the Jewish people. And it is the official state religion of Israel, of the nation of Israel. Where is Israel? I'm sure you all know. But let's put it on the map just in cases. Just in cases. Where's the map? Here it is. So, where is the nation of Israel? It's this tiny little nation on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Yes. South of Lebanon, north of Egypt, west of Jordan and Syria. And uh, yeah, so that's the location. So, Judaism originated in this region, in, in, in what is now called Israel, more or less. Right, so how ancient is Judaism? Well, the oldest uh, record that we have of Judaism or of the Jewish people is from an Egyptian record. is It's it's an Egyptian inscription that, and it's it's uh, well, historians are kind of divided about whether it does actually refers to the Jewish people or not, but assuming it does indeed refer to the Jewish people, uh, this. Uh, Inscription is about 3,100 or 3,200 years old. So that's the, if, if if it indeed refers to Jews, then that's how old Judaism may, may be. Maybe it would be slightly older than that. So maybe three and a half thousand years. But the oldest record seems to be about 3,000, 3,100 years old. So if Judaism is about three and a half thousand years old, yeah, then it would be approximately as old as the civilization of China. And, um, uh, they have a significant extensive history. You had kings like David, King David, King Saul, um, King Solomon, etc. And so on. And then uh, you had this region that was it was, it was uh, invaded and occupied and ruled by the Romans. Then there were the revolts against Roman rule by the, by, by the Jews. In retaliation, the Romans uh, destroyed the, the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem and so on. So yeah, there's there's a whole history that the Jewish people have, and then you had the Crusades, uh, then you had the 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 Islamic expansion in this region, and that they took over the region, and and the Romans uh, they forced many of the Jews to to 
move out of the region. The Jewish diaspora went all across Europe because of the Roman policies and all that. They were forcibly expelled out of the region. Then you had the Islamic occupation of the region. Then this region became entirely Islamic, entirely Muslim, more or less. The Jews no longer had a presence there for the longest time. So for the longest time, there was no Israel. And then Israel was recreated at the end, in the first half of the 20th century by European powers, by mainly by, by Britain, etc. There's a whole story in that. So that's when Israel started existing again. So that region is the original homeland of the Jewish people. This dates back to about 3,000 years, maybe 3,500 years. But for the longest time, there was no Israel. There was no nation of Israel. There was no nation state of Israel. That was recreated about 100 uh, I mean, less than a hundred years ago. So that is the story of the Jews. In in very brief, it's a, it's a very complex and long history. But yeah, to answer the question, Judaism is about three thousand, maybe three three and a half thousand years old at the most, as far as we know from whatever evidence we have. All right. Okay, Akhand Bharat says. Congratulations on five. Thank you very much. So, uh, can you talk about the slavery of Europeans by is by the Islamic Ottoman Empire? How extensive was this slavery of Europeans? How many Europeans were ex- enslaved in total? I don't think many many people speak about this. And yeah, okay, all right. So, uh, the the Ottoman Empire obviously had this policy of of slavery. They engaged in the slave trade. Lots of people were taken as slaves, mainly from Africa and also from Europe. So, uh, the, what are the origins of the, of the Ottoman Empire? The origins of the, of the Ottoman Empire are the um, invasion and occupation of Anatolia by the Turks. So, the Turks. Uh, let's go to the map. So the Turks were the Turkic people of Central Asia. Their origin most likely is in Eastern Asia, in the Mongolia region. Maybe the Xionyu people that the Chinese spoke about were the were possibly the ancestors of the Turkic, Turkic people. We also had a Turkic people who ruled parts of Northern India. The Turk Shahi, Kabul Shahi, Hindu Shahi dynasties, who were all Hindu, of course. Yeah. And they actually, they actually defended India for a couple of centuries from Turkic invasions, despite being Turkic of, of Turkic origin themselves. Anyhow, the Turks first started intruding into the region of Anatolia, which was historically Greek, about roughly 900 or 1,000 years before today. Right? Um, and then over time, they made more inroads in, into the place and eventually they were able... Uh, one of the major incursions into this region happened when the Turks were fleeing the expanding Mongol Empire. So, so in the 13th century, 14th century, there was a sudden new phenomenon in Central Asia, in Eastern Asia. The Mongol Empire e- emerged out of nowhere under the leadership of the great Genghis Khan. And the Turks were running from that. And that's uh, that's how one of the major incursions into Central Asia happened, in, into Anatolia by the Turks happened, under Suleiman Shah, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And later, obviously, uh, at that time, you had the Byzantine Empire in this region, which was the Eastern uh, Roman Empire. And eventually the Turks were able to conquer Constantinople. It is now called Istanbul and so on. And then you had the Ottoman Empire, which was based out of Constantinople. It was also the Ottoman Caliphate. The the Turkish Sultan was also the Caliph, right? And they had this practice of slavery, which was perfectly legal in their culture. And many of the slaves that they, many of the people they enslaved were the Europeans themselves. So first of all, Anatolia was historically a Greek region 
it was Christian at the time. And when the Turks started coming into Anatolia, they uh, they had this policy, they had this culture of bride kidnapping. So if 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 a young Turkish man, Turkic man wanted to get, get married, he had to prove his manhood and his and his ability as a warrior to by by going into by going into an, a neighboring village and kidnapping a girl and bringing her back and then he could marry her that was a custom bride kidnapping it still exists in many parts of the world including in afghanistan and pakistan i believe yeah bride kidnapping so this was one of the customs they had so when they started coming into uh, they started uh, occupying anatolia they continued this tradition they started kidnapping girls the local girls and marrying with them and over time the turkic people who were originally central asian and they looked like central asians or mongols they became completely europeanized so if you look at the people of turkey today they look like europeans they mostly have anatolian greek blood or maybe armenian georgian blood or caucasian blood caucasus region right mm -hmm. so it's all because primarily of this of this custom of taking um, you know kidnapping brides so that you could consider to be one of the manifestations of of taking a person as a slave because you're kidnapping somebody and ma getting married to that person that person essentially becomes a slave for life uh, so that is one thing then they obviously had the slave trade they it is believed uh, let's take a look at some articles right some some scholarly articles otherwise uh, so, it's best to take a look at some scholarly articles. So here is one. Uh, European slaves in the Ottoman Empire, Christian slaves, Muslim masters, white slavery, slavery in the Mediterranean, the Barbary Coast in Italy, 1500 to 1800. So that's a book from 2003. That is one. Uh, and I can also show you a review of that, which is, uh, if it would ever load, it will load here. European slaves in the Ottoman Empire. It's a review article and so on. And there are many other uh, other books that have been written about this and articles written about this. So this was indeed a thing. It was indeed something that happened. So it is believed that uh, in the in the Black Sea region, over a period of about between fifteen hundred to about eighteen hundred or so, mm -hmm. the Turks took about two and a half million European slaves. Two and a half million. European slaves. And the Turks also had this practice of uh, they had this elite armed force called the Janissaries. So the Janissaries were entirely made up of slave boys. So the Turks had conquered parts of Europe, including the Balkan region, Balkan region and all, uh, and parts of other, other, Europe, uh, other parts of Europe as well. So what the Turks would do is that they would force every household in these regions to, to offer one to give one boy as a slave to the Turks it was not offered it was taken yeah so this was a custom it was called the blood tax or something I forget the Turkish name or something they call it yeah so all of these families in these regions they had to give away one boy as a slave to the Turks it would be it would be a young boy maybe probably most likely less than 10 years old some some of them would be older but they would all be young pre-teenage boys most likely most of them these boys would be taken as slaves and they would be uh, converted to to the religion of the of the turks which is islam they would uh, be offered education in the turkish language and they would be converted into soldiers these soldiers were, were called the janissaries and um, this was also slavery 
and the janissaries were the, were the elite bodyguards of the turkish sultan so that's how deeply they were indoctrinated and they were, they became fanatical in the support of the Tur- turkish sultan one of these boys who was taken as a hostage as a slave was uh, was prince vlad of wallachia who was later known as vlad the impaler so he went on to escape or uh, somehow turkish captivity and he became one of the major uh, opponents of the turks in romania he was later called vlad the impaler he was he is also known as vlad dracul or draculia which is f- from where the entire dracula story comes from yeah so yeah that, that that's uh, an interesting historical nugget yeah so yeah the turkish uh, slave trade was very extensive they also there were they also used to purchase slaves from the barbary slave traders which was in the north african region the mediterranean region the, the pirates they used to you know raid ships and raid the coasts and all and take slaves and then sell sell these slaves to the turks uh that's how it was it, there was a time when in istanbul in in constantinople about 20% of the population was made up of slaves and many of them were of european origin yeah so overall i think hundreds of thousands of people were taken europeans were taken as slaves in the in the north sea region not 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 north, north sea the black sea region it is believed about 2 and 1/2 million europeans were, were eventually taken captured by the turks and and converted into into slaves so yeah this is not really spoken about a lot for whatever reason but yes it was a very very big deal Okay Evelina says what weakened the in- ancient indian society internally that allowed it to be conquered by foreigners after such major developments as in the field of prosthetics was it some kind of cultural degeneracy like in the west was india after peaking uh, suffering cultural decline like in the west today is it a cyclical nature of civilization was or was india immune to this westerners say that women come to positions of leadership when society declines <laughs> uh well it depends on the culture and all that see uh what weakened indian society internally that un- allowed it to be conquered by foreigners it was not a weakening of indian society that caused it to be al- that uh, that allowed it to be conquered by foreigners in any society in any any civilization there are these cycles of of consolidation of political power and fragmentation of political power so in india we had various uh, imperial phases um entire empires that spanned the entire continent subcontinent and unified the entire subcontinent you had the mauryan empire that unified the entire subcontinent politically just one ruler the emperor of india whether it was chandragupta maurya or ashoka who or whoever else one emperor of all india that was during the mauryan era then also during the kushan era when you had a great emperor like kanishka who ruled over the whole of india and much more yes almost all of india and and much more beyond india so once again uh consolidation of political power across the entire subcontinent continent then you had the gupta emperors who also unified the entire continent subcontinent politically so whenever india was unified politically it was impossible to invade before the mauryan empire you had the nanda empire the nanda dynasty and the nanda dynasty was in power in india over unified india when the greek warlord alexander the greek tried to invade india and we know what happened he we know what happened his soldiers rebelled they mutinied against him they said we will not go further east because we know what's waiting for us the entire might of the indian empire the nanda empire 
the Greeks would have been obliterated. Mm-hmm. So whenever India was unified politically under a single leader, under a single emperor, India was impossible to conquer. And there were times when these empires fragmented. And then you had political instability. You had lots of different kingdoms fighting little petty fights against each other. That's when it was easier to invade India. Yeah. So, and there have been multiple invasions and conquests of India by various foreigners. So you had the... uh, you had the uh, Greek invasion of India, which was subsequent to Alexander's invasion. This was in the post-Seleucid era. So you had various Indo-Greek kings who ruled in, in the Gandhar in northwest India. Some of them made, made inroads further east and so, so on. But they all absorbed Indian culture. They assimilated into Indian culture and their descendants still, still live in India today. Nobody knows. Who knows who was Greek, Greek ancestry or not? I think most people in northern and western India will have, will have a fractional amount of Greek ancestry. Maybe 1%, 2% possibly. Yeah. Then you had the Kushan invasion, the Scythian invasion. Kushans and Scythians were of Indian origin. They lived in... in the Kushans lived in what is what was then called Uttara Kuru. And the Scythians, they roamed all across Uttara Madra, Central Asia. These people had Indian ancestry and their culture was very similar to Indian culture. So they also assimilated very harmoniously into India. It is only in the past 1000 years that very foreign cultures came into India and they tried to destroy Indian culture. So the reason for the reason. So India obviously was advanced in the field of prosthetics, in in mathematics, in astronomy, in science, in all kinds of things. And and in, in arts, all those things that is of no use if you don't have the military strength and the and the political ability to defend the nation. In the, in, the, in the subcontinent. So you may have the best culture in the world, the most advanced science in the world, but if you are not unified politically and strong militarily, all of that is going to be lost. So that's what happened to India. So it was not a weakening of Indian society or a fault of Indian culture. It was just the unfortunate fact that the invasion, the Turkic invasions happened when India was not unified politically. And that's why all of this happened. There was no cultural degeneracy in India. The cultural degeneracy entered India in the past 1000 years through foreigners. Yeah, so the, the, there was no cultural degeneracy. It is just the, uh, the the fact that India was India was caught at a time, India was invaded by the Turks at a time when there was no political unity. You had various kingdoms that ruled India in various parts of India, but there was no single unified center of power like an emperor like you had when the Huns tried to invade India during the time of the Gupta emperors, Skandagupta, etc. And it was not successful, successful as long as the Gupta empire existed. So that's that's the reason. There was no uh, weakening of Indian society or, or cultural degeneracy. In India, You, I mean, one of the things that's said here is that Westerners, Westerners say that women come to positions of leadership when society declines. In, in India, it's not been the case. In India, women have been in positions of power and it's not been a symptom of the decline of society. It's been a, a, simple of, a, a symptom of the strength of Indian society in Indian culture. In Indian culture, women have the highest respect and regard. And women have historically taken positions of leadership. They have even fought wars and battles and all that in, in the past. So in India, if a woman is in a position of power, it's not a symptom of, of the decline of society or degeneracy of society. It's a, it's a symptom of the strength of Indian society. That's a whole different thing. right? 
Saurabh says, is Mahabharat post-Mauryan history? <laughs> As per our great historian, uh, Madam Romila Thaparji, she says that Yudhishthir got inspiration from the great king Ashoka. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it appears that he did actually make the statement. Let's take a look. We need to put some evidence on the screen for this to be taken seriously. So what did the great lady Romila Thapar say? So this was, I think, in 2019 or so. And uh, yeah, there are some clips of this uh, which are available on Twitter. So uh, history grew gold from the great historian Romila Thapar. Maybe Yudhishthir in Mahabharat had the image of Ashok in his mind when he renounced his kingship. So that's what Romila Thapar said in this video clip. I'm not going to play the clip over here. But that's what she actually said. Romila Thapar has been portrayed as one of India's greatest and most eminent historians. She has written, authored various books that are still taught in uh, college, university or, or whatever level. And she said that maybe Yudhishthir of the Mahabharat era had the image of Emperor Ashok in his mind when he renounced his kingship. Now, Ashok obviously was a Mauryan emperor of India. He lived in whatever BC, 232 BC or whatever it is. I'm, I don't remember the exact date, but yeah. Let's say what is said here is correct. And he lived in 232 BC. The Mahabharat era comes way before that. Way before that. So in the Mahabharat, there is there are mentions of the, of the river Saraswati. So obviously the Mahabharat thing, um, the event of the Mahabharat happened when the Saraswati was still an active river and not a gone, a dried out, desiccated river. Right? So the Mahabharat happened thousands of years before the Mo Mauryan era. When, Ashok, when Emperor Ashok ruled India. And yet this lady, this great eminent historian, made the claim that maybe Yudhishthir of Mahabharat was thinking of Ashok when he renounced his kingship. So yeah, that, that is something that the lady indeed said and I have no logical explanation for what she said. It, it makes no sense to me. I am unable to understand or fathom the thought process or the logic or the chronology <laughs> so yeah, obviously the Mahabharat is not post-Mauryan history. Mauryan history is very recent history. It's like day before yesterday. It's only two and a half thousand years before today. In, in the big picture perspective of Indian history, it's like day before yesterday. The Mahabharat happened several thousand years before that. So yeah, that's one of the great statements of this great eminent lady, Madame Robila Thapar. <laughs> Incredible. Okay, Maine says, have you watched the interview of Salvatore Babonis at India Today, where he claims that it is not the foreign institutions that are anti-India, but it's the Indian intellectuals that are anti-India. But I said, me, that foreign institutions are also anti-India. So what's your take on this? It's very interesting. So this uh, gentleman, Salvatore Babonis, he, I think he's Australian of American origin or something. I don't know what his background is. I have not seen the entire interview. I've seen some clips here and there. And he indeed said that, you know, the major enemies of India are the Indian intellectuals themselves. He said that it. Um, he said that it's not the fault of Western in institutions for being, um, for, for uh, drawing various conclusions that are anti-India. It is the fault of Indian intellectuals that this image of India has been created, right? He said that it's the, it's the fault of the Indians. 
not the fault of these institutions in the West and the surveys that they create and all that. Yeah, The problem with this statement is that all these surveys are created by the, are, are, are done by the West. There are various uh, surveys of, of human rights situations and uh, happiness indices and democracy indices and all, which are entirely created, run by the, by the, mainly the Americans and by various uh, Western nations and Western institutions. It's not done by Indians, right? So what Salvatore Babonis has done, he has exonerated all these institutions and laid the blame on the Indians. These Indians who then go on social media and parrot whatever the Western surveys are saying, these Indians are merely hired coolies. That's what they are. I will not take anybody's name because I don't want to, yeah, that's not, that's not important. But the Indians who then put it out on social media and, you know, publicize it, they are nothing but hired minions, hired coolies, sepoys. Yeah, that's what they are. But the samples of these surveys are selected by these by the agencies, by these institutions, right? There is the the Pew Pew Group, which can which conducts research on uh, I don't know what languages and religion and caste and human rights and whatnot. That that's not run by Indians, yeah. So this uh, statement that was done by these days, uh, Mr. Babon has become Babones has become very popular. Uh, all Indian podcasters and journalists are interviewing him. He's become kind of a celebrity, etc. But he has very cleverly exonerated the Western institutions that are at the core, at the root, the, which are the root cause of all these, all all this anti-India sentiment, right? So I find it very interesting. It's like <laughs> there are various. Uh, Western intellectuals who are either professors or they are members of think tanks or whatever that kind of take a pro-India position but at the end of the day they are still exonerating the West. There are various such people. Some of them are quite subtle about it and some of them are just open, you know, in your face. So Salvatore Babones is in your face. He, he he's, he's taking a very crude approach and he's really enjoying the attention he's getting right now. Yeah. He's become kind of a celebrity. And, you know, Indians Indians are very happy to adopt. If somebody says a couple of good words about you, Indians become all happy and emotional about it. Yeah, this is our guy. We need to promote him and blah, blah, blah. One has to be careful. You have to observe a person for at least five years minimum before you can trust that person. That's something Indians don't understand. The moment somebody says two good words about you, you are like, ah, oh, let's go and embrace this person. Very emotional people, Indians. And that's why Indians are so easy to fool. So easy to fool. Anyhow. Okay, two questions here. One is by Mangal. Uh, how and when did Indians start living in Guyana? And the other question is by Kuldeep. <clears throat> I have recently been to Amsterdam and I came across some Indian-looking people who I came to know were not Indians but Surinamese. They look similar to us. Even their food, their customs, culture, ethnicity is very much like us. But it seems that they were contract laborers or slaves during colonial times. So can I discuss the ancestry of the Surinamese people? So first of all, okay, good question, very nice. Let's first look at the geography of the region to understand what we're talking about. Suriname and Guyana, the, the question is about these two nations. Let's go to maps. Maps, maps, maps. So where is Suriname, where is Guyana? It's in... South America, on the northern tip, on the no northeastern 
part of South America. So you have French Guyana over here, where you have the rocket launching station, which is run by the French, Kourou. Then you have Suriname over here. And to the east, uh, to the west of Suriname, you have this nation called Guyana. Yeah. Uh, and Guyana is also a cricket playing nation, for instance. Yeah. So what's the story? What's the history? So in Suriname, you have people of Indian origin who look like Indians. They look exactly like Indians. Yeah. And uh, their customs are Indian culture customs. Their food is Indian food. But they most likely speak the Dutch language. So that's the deal. In Guyana, you also have Indians and all. Lots of Indians. And then you have Trinidad and Tobago and the West Indies nearby. And we know there are lots of Indian origin people in the West Indies. So what is the story? What is happening over here? That's the question. Let me put something else on the screen. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's understand how this happened. How did these people end up over there? So, take a look at the image. This is something I tweeted in 2017. The British transported half a million Indian indentured laborers, which means slaves, to Mauritius. They transported half a million of such Indians to the Caribbean region and Guyana and 1.5 lakhs to South Africa. That's a million Indians forced into slavery, cut off from their roots forever. And this image illustrates this, this entire thing. So these are, these are the voyages which were forced upon Indian indentured workers, which are slaves, between 1835 and 1917. So the British gave, created this new terminology, indentured workers, to replace the term slaves. But it was exactly the same thing. There was no real difference. So when we talk about Suriname and Guyana, there's a half million Indians who, who were transported forcibly to this region. The West Indies, which are islands, Suriname and Guyana. So that's that's the origin of these people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the, the British sent at least 1.5 lakh indentured laborers, a fancy word for slaves from India to South Africa. They had very few rights. They were subject to racist laws, racist laws for generations and so on. So that is the answer to the question. That's how it happened. The British in the 19th century, in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, sent nearly a million Indians into slavery in various parts of the world. Mauritius, if you go to Mauritius, it's full of Indians, of Indian origin people. They speak the Mauritian Creole language, which is a mixture of Mauritian language in various other languages. Some of it will be Tamil, some of it will be Hindi, some African languages as well. So you have the Mauritius region, you have Seychelles, in which the Seychelles archipelago also has Indians, many Indians there. We know about South Africa, obviously. We know about the east coast of Africa. And we have Guyana and Suriname and the West Indies region. Now let's talk about Suriname. Let's go a little deeper into Suriname. I'm, I'm putting up a Wikipedia article on the screen. As always, let me remind you, Wikipedia is not always a trustworthy source of information, but we'll just keep it here for the sake of convenience. So in Suriname, there is uh, the Indo-Surinamese population, many people of Indian ancestry. Let's look at Suriname itself and let's look at the demographics in Suriname. Do we have a section on demographics? Here we have it. If you look at the ethnic groups in Suriname, the largest ethnic group is Indians. 27.4% of Surinamese people are of Indian origin. 
Then you have Maroon and Creole and Javanese. 14% of the people of Suriname are Javanese from Java, Indonesia, Yavadweep. And the French considered, the French rulers in this region, they considered the Javanese also to be Indians. But today they are considered to be a separate category. Right? So yeah. So the largest, uh, the largest ethnic group in Suriname is Indians. And the current... Uh, the, the current president of Suriname is of Indian origin. Let's put this gentleman's um, page on the screen. His name is Chandrika Prasad Santokhi. Chandrika Prasad Santokhi, who is a Surinamese politician, former police official, police officer, the ninth and current president of Suriname. Right? So, yeah, he is of Indian origin. <clears throat> and also the same thing in Guyana, lots of Indians there. So that is the deal. So that is the uh, that is how these people ended up. These Indian origin people ended up in Suriname, in Guyana, as indentured laborers, essentially slaves. And now they are a significant percentage of the population there, and they still continue to practice their their culture and their traditions to a large extent. Many of them, if you look at the um, if you look at the religions that uh, you have in Suriname today. Let's take a look at that. I am sure Hinduism will be in a minority because many of them will have been converted to whatever other religion exists there. Let's see religion. The large, see, Indians are 27.4% of the Surinamese, but Hinduism is just 18.8%. And Christianity is the major religion in Suriname, more than 52%. So yeah, no surprise there. That's what happens. Anyhow, if you look at the Hindu Surinamese and Hindu Guyanese people, they are more Indian or more Hindu than Indian Hindus themselves. They have preserved their culture better than it is preserved in most parts of India today, which is strange, but not surprising. Okay, this is by Val, who says, come on, come on. <laughs> the Native Americans were not exactly all peace, flowers and butterflies. They were bloodthirsty tribes who practiced human sacrifice and were murdering each other in their wars for resources, just like any other people on earth. It just happened that the stronger tribe came and took their land. The American natives, which is the Europeans, the American natives would have done the same if it had been vice versa. So this uh, gentleman, person, I don't know who it is, is claiming that the Native Americans were cruel, bloodthirsty barbarians who were sacrificing humans and maybe sacrificing children and murdering each other. They were just brutal, sav primitive savages. And the Europeans came and they were stronger and they civilized them. That is the narrative that we are seeing all across. The, that, that has been the dominant narrative for the past several centuries. Yes. The Western narrative, the Eurocentric narrative, the white supremacist narrative, that all non-white, non-European people were bloodthirsty, barbaric savages who needed to be civilized. Who needed, needed to be civilized? And they were killing each other. They were practicing human sacrifice. One of the things, you know, one of the easiest ways to make somebody look like a barbarian is to claim that they practiced human sacrifice. So what were the Europeans doing in the Middle Ages? What was the, the, the second most popular book in Europe in the Middle Ages was the Maleus Maleficarum. The Hammer of the Witches. It was a, a Christian book. It, it um, was a manual about how to identify witches, how to torture them and how to kill them. And the Europeans killed hundreds of thousands of women by burning them at the stake in the name of religion. 
in the Middle Ages in Europe. Is this not human sacrifice? It exceeds any Native American human sacrifice, even if it existed on by by several orders of magnitude. And what evidence do we have that the Native Americans practiced human sacrifice and they were murdering each other and they were bloodthirsty? Utter nonsense these people push, you know. So let's take a look at what actually happened. So I have on several occasions said that the Europeans killed about 100 million Native Americans and, and people don't believe it. So let's take a look at what uh, the academic consensus seems to be. So here is a research paper from 2019. Yeah, Quaternary Science Reviews. Earth system impacts of the European arrival and great dying in the Americas after 1492. So it estimates that the European arrival in 1492 led to 56 million deaths by 1600. In just a century, 56 million deaths in, in the Americas. And some of them they claim is because of diseases and, all, diseases and all that. So this is one research paper. There is another uh, another article here from CNN. European colonizers killed so many Native Americans that it changed the global climate, researchers say. And this once again goes quotes uh, uh, the 56 million um, deaths figure. Yeah. So this is larger than any Holocaust, anything that Stalin did, anything that Mao did in just a hundred roughly 100 years and obviously there was much more to it than this I am pretty sure that the actual figure I, I still haven't done uh, put forth put, collated all the all the figures uh, which have been put forth by various research groups and all that maybe I will do that in the future I am pretty certain that the figure actually exceeds 100 million people in a period over a period of maybe 2-3 centuries in just 100 years you have 56 million deaths Let's add another 200 years to it and then come up with the actual figure. It's going to exceed 100 million. So these Europeans, they killed more than 100 million Native Americans. Can you imagine that? And yet they, they, they come on this channel and they claim that the, American, the Indian Americans or Native Americans were to blame. They deserved it. They were primitive savages. They practice human sacrifice. What evidence do you have? Nothing. But yeah, you'll make the claim. And they were murdering each other for resources. So if there is some kind of inter-tribe inter conflict, you're going to portray it as murder. What about the history of Europe over the past 1,000 years? It's a history of murder, bloodlust, warfare, constant war. The First World War and Second World War were European tribal conflicts. Which, which ruined half the world. The most bloodthirsty people on the planet are the Europeans. Look at their history. Look at what they've done to each other, what, what they have been doing to each other. You know, Joseph Goebbels said that you should always blame your enemy of what you, are, of what you have been doing. I don't know what the exact quote is. I'm not going to open up the screen and put that on the, on the screen. But yeah, accuse the other side of what you are guilty of. So that's that's the kind of mind trick these people play. So they have the Europeans have been responsible for the most horrific genocides in the world. Only the Turks come close to it. What the Turks did in, did in India would possibly exceed 100 million deaths. Yeah. So the Native American genocide is, is something similar.
and yet they have the gall to come here and say that the 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 native americans deserved it because they were bloodthirsty apparently and primitive and backward and they practiced human sacrifice and were murderers so it's fine it's fine it's it's fine what happened this is the narrative that has been the dominant narrative for more than a century ever since the the for for a couple of centuries at least ever since the age of colonialism began so they colonized the world they destroyed the world they plundered the world they con- conducted genocides in at least three continents and then they accused the other side of being primitive and barbaric and that's why it is justified so that's what we have been up against all this time now it will change it's it's high time that we put forth the truth Okay, Rishi says, I recently came across many articles which say that the Russian military doesn't use the Brahmos missile. The reason cited was that they already have the P-800 Onyx missile, which India has redesigned to create the Brahmos. To which degree is it Russian, the Brahmos? How much has India added to it and why does Russia not use it? Okay, uh, I'm sure we all know what the Brahmos missile looks like. Let's take a look at Brahmos. What does the Brahmos missile look like? We want to see what it looks like. Let's do that. Let's put that on the screen. So here's a simple image search for the Brahmos. And here's what the missile looks like from the side. Uh, here's another view of the Brahmos missile. Another one. Here's the Brahmos missile taking off and so on and so forth. So this is the overall appearance of the Brahmos missile. Now you are referring to the P-800 missile, right? So let's see what the P-800 missile looks like. It's called the Onyx missile. So if you look here, it looks very much like the Brahmos missile. And the the fact is that the Brahmos missile has been uh, created, constructed, designed, whatever, based on the design of the P-800 Onyx missile. So that's why the Brahmos looks very much like the P-800. And the Russian military has the P-800 Onyx missile. And it's been used in various conflicts, including most likely in, in the Ukraine conflict as well. Now, the Brahmos missile is a more advanced version of the P-800 Onyx. How much of it is Russian? How much of it is Indian? We don't quite know. These this, these facts will not be revealed to the public. This, this is classified information. It's not available for public consumption. So, yes, it's a jointly developed missile. Indians and Russians, Indian scientists, engineers and Russian scientists, engineers have collaborated in in creating the Brahmos missile. It will be a more advanced version, most likely, of the P-800 Onyx uh, and so on, right? So that's what it is. Now, why does the Russian military not use the Brahmos missile? Well, the Russian military doesn't use the Brahmos missile because they already have the P-800 Onyx, first of all. And secondly, because they have other missiles as well. For instance, they have the three, they have the Zircon missile, the 3M22 Zircon missile, which is a scramjet powered maneuvering anti-ship hypersonic cruise missile. So the Brahmos missile is a ramjet powered maneuvering anti-ship supersonic cruise missile. The Brahmos missile has a top speed of maybe Mark II or Mark III. Yeah, two or three times. I, I think it's two times the speed of sound. So it's a supersonic missile. Maybe two and a half times the speed of sound. So maybe Mark 2.5. The Zircon missile is a Mark IX missile. It travels at nine times the speed of sound. Right? It's a hypersonic missile. 
and it doesn't use a ramjet motor it uses a scramjet motor a super uh, supersonic combust uh, combustion uh, uh, motor so the russians have more advanced missiles and that's why they they most likely that and because they also have the p800 onyx missile and the zircon missile and various other missiles that's why they maybe have not maybe that's why they've chosen not to use the brahmos missile thus far there have been reports that some of the brahmos missiles will be inducted in some of the various uh, uh, russian naval assets maybe destroyers or whatever so we're not sure if it's a tap if it has happened or not but the russians have multiple alternatives now we are obviously uh, designing we are there's a new there are new variants of the brahmos missile in development right now including a hypersonic version including a smaller version including there's a whole bunch of missiles that are currently in development maybe maybe they are developed maybe they're not these of uh, matters are not publicized so there's all that happening uh so the russians have lots of options and alternatives and that's why they have not inducted the brahmos as far as we know in their military so yeah they have options and the zircon missile is a very interesting missile it seems to be a missile that nobody has any defense against it's a mark 9 maneuverable missile so it's not a missile that will go travel in a straight line it will maneuver like the brahmos does the brahmos missile is a maneuvering missile it can do this s shape pattern while cruising over the over the sea it can also dive suddenly from a from a height so if you have a chinese military station on the other side of a himalayan peak then you can launch a brahmos missile that goes above the peak and then dives 70 degrees down at a 70 degree angle so the brahmos is a maneuver, maneuvering missile the zircon is also maneuvering missile but it is at it maneuvers at mark 9 incredible speed i believe there is no missile defense system in the world that can defend a target against the zircon missile so whatever aircraft carriers the british have the, or the americans have they have no defense against the zircon they could defend themselves against the brahmos possibly but not against the zircon so the russians have more advanced missiles and that's why most likely they have not inducted the brahmos and i would say that india should possibly try and acquire some of the technology or some of those missiles the zircon for instance because you can't have you can't rely on just one missile obviously we are coming up with various new variants of the brahmos missile but we should have a whole family of missiles for different uses i mean if you are a carpenter you don't have only one tool in the, in your toolbox right you have a whole bunch of tools right so we need to diversify our portfolio of missiles obviously we have a whole big portfolio of various kinds of ballistic missiles we do have that no doubt we are also um, we have the shorya missile which is a kind of hybrid kind of missile we also have the nirbhay missile which is a subsonic cruise missile that is under development and which seems to now uh, being uh, now doing well in tests and all that but we would also want to we should also invest in supersonic and possibly hypersonic missiles yeah so yeah we should do that all right vibhav says turkey has released images of its new fifth generation fighter aircraft which is currently in the fabrication phase and it will be completed in march 
while we Indians are still waiting for AMCA, CCS approval, what are your thoughts? I am sad seeing everybody going ahead of us. Okay, I'm not sure what is the state of the, of the AMCA. It's obviously the AMCA is the Indian future fifth generation fighter aircraft, the advanced medium combat aircraft, which is currently under development. I'm not sure what the exact status is. The Turks are developing their own fifth generation fighter plane. They've released some pictures of, the, of that. And it is currently in its fabrication phase. The first proto prototype will be completed in, in March 2023, according to what is being said over here. Okay, I'm not sure about that. Maybe it will. I believe that the first prototype of the AMCA will be ready in 24 or 25, a couple of years after the Turks. And the first test flight of the AMCA will happen soon after, maybe 26, 27. I don't remember the exact time frame. But most likely by 2030 or so, the the, the first of fighter aircraft AMCA could enter produ production, possibly, around 2030 or so. See, when you are developing a new aircraft, it takes time. Look at the development time period, time frame of the F-35 fighter plane, which the Americans have now inducted. It took more than 20 years. It cost almost a trillion dollars. So any new aircraft that you're developing, especially advanced aircraft like fifth generation fighter planes, it takes time. Maybe the Turks started before us and all. That's fine. It doesn't matter. So I don't think India is lagging too far behind. What India needs to do is that is India needs to, first of all, start inducting more of the Tejas fighter planes, yeah, fighter jets. Uh, and we need to push the push push on with the development of the AMCA maybe the F, uh, maybe the uh, TEBDF twin engine deck based fighter possibly for the indian navy for the for the aircraft carriers because we already have two aircraft carriers i have always been against inducting more aircraft carriers but we, since we already have two we need fighter planes that can you know that can be uh, used on those aircraft carriers so we should have our own indigenous fighter plane for that. So I think there's one of that in development, the TEDBF, twin engine deck, deck based fighter plane. And the AMCA will most likely be ready, hopefully by the end of this decade, by 2030, roughly that time period. So I don't think we are too far behind. Wait a couple of years and we will have our first prototype, maybe by 2024, 20, 25 latest. So we are, we are doing okay. We're not doing badly. The thing is, uh, the government should give full support to this program and it's that's what's happening we also have certain other fighter certain other planes that are in development unmanned aircraft um flying wing based uh, designed aircraft the the drdo aura or ghatak or whatever it is called which is a very interesting development you know fully completely fully stealth stealth uh, stealth aircraft and all that so i think india is doing well India is doing well. There is no need to become sad that the Turks have gone two uh, years ahead of us. It's all right. It's all right. What India needs is a decade of peace, ideally two decades of peace. And we need to stop buying foreign defense equipment, foreign planes and all that. We need to start creating our own um, systems, defense systems and all that. So yeah, I think we are on track for that. We are doing well. I, I'm sure we can do better. So let's, let's see how it goes. But overall, it's, we are doing fine. Okay. Saurabh says, why is the Ram Setu named Adam's Bridge? Is it true that this name was coined around the 18th century? Why is the Ram Setu linked to Abrahamic faith? I don't know. I have no idea about Abrahamic faith and all that. But yes, 
this structure has historically for thousands of years being been called the rama setu it is the british who came to india and named it the adams bridge there is a, a mountain in sri lanka which is called the adams peak which the british uh, it's a name that the british gave it was historically called something else adams peak sri lanka let's see adams peak sri lanka it's called the adams peak and and what was it called historically in in the sri, sri lankan sinhalese tradition it was called the shri pad footprint of the buddha or the footprint of hanuman or footprint of shiva and so on mountain of shiva's light and so on but but it is the the british given name that is now being used adams peak in wikipedia the, Wiki, the in wikipedia it's always the western narrative that is prevalent i mean it's it's a foreign name it's a name that has been imposed by foreigner foreigners so why is it not called shri pada or whatever else right so that's the deal that's the problem the entire world is still following these eurocentric traditions these occidentalist western supremacist traditions we have the rama setu which is called the adams bridge we have the shri pada which is called adams peak in sri lanka we have sagar matha which is called mount everest we have the sea of savarashtra or the indian sea which is called the arabian sea even the arabs call it the indian sea if you look at arab chronicles in the arabic language the sea was always called the indian sea but now it's called the arabic sea arabian sea then you have the the champa samudra which is now called the south china sea which has given the chinese a great uh, you know pretext to claim the whole place the entire sea for themselves and there are so many other other examples of that uh so yeah so the it is the the westerners that have imposed all these names and we have been forced to 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 use these names so it is high time we decolonize it is high time we decolonize there are so many names in india place names names of places of cities and towns and villages and roads and other landmarks which are named after invaders and after the europeans a uh, jim corbett national park jim corbett was a killer of tigers he was a poacher why have we named this national park after that barbarian jim corbett and there's this macleod ganj somewhere and there are so many such names then obviously there are all the names named after the turkic occupiers of india we need to decolonize it is high time we start the process of decolonization but yeah some of it is happening which is good um for instance in in mumbai there there used to be this prince of wales museum prince of wales museum which is now called the chhatrapati shivaji maharaj vastu sangrahalay or something like that excellent very good i like it so we need more of this we need to rename and of course there is this there was this road in delhi which was called the aurangzeb road now it's called the kalam road again excellent so this process needs to happen there are so many names that <clears throat> are false are wrong and we need to reclaim our history yeah so yeah it needs to happen it needs to happen pranab says how can sports influence society according to you how india lost its own sports and embraced foreign sports how can india influence through sports how can sports influence a society see uh, let me give you an anecdote i remember when india 
won the 2007 2020 World Cup in cricket. It was uh, there, there was an outpouring of jubilation nationwide. On the streets, you had complete strangers who were embracing and hugging each other. So you know what sports does? Sports unifies. And not sports, but sporting success unifies a nation. Because when the nation succeeds, everybody wants to take part in the success and, and claim some credit for the success. So when the nation succeeds, everybody wants to be part of that. But when a nation fails in something, the blame, gaming, blame game and finger pointing starts. So nothing unifies a nation like success. And nothing divides a nation like failure. So one of the easiest ways... Of, of raising the morale of the of the nation and unifying the nation is to achieve sporting success. And that's something the West understands very well. That's why they invest so much in sports. That's what the Chinese have understood. That's what the Russians, the Soviets have to understand. India has traditionally neglected sports very badly. Now India is starting to become good at sports in, in certain sports like, say, wrestling, in badminton. This The rise of India is, is beginning now. It's still in the initial phases. Um, so sports can influence society greatly. It can, can create an entire ecosystem. Uh, uh, it can create hundreds of thousands of jobs. You know, sporting staff, coaches, trainers, sports medicine professionals, ground staff. There's a whole job market that, that can be created by investing in sport. Yeah. And people who are athletes, when they retire, they can go and become part of the job market and, and offer coaching and other, um, and other specialized services to future athletes and emerging athletes and children and all that. So it can provide lots of jobs. But most importantly, sports unifies the nation. Let's say, I mean, right now you have the Football World Cup happening. India has, has not qualified for that. But imagine if India were to qualify for the Football World Cup and maybe reach the quarterfinals or semifinals. It would, re it would unify the nation like anything. Because you will have footballers in the team, in the 20-member team, that are from all parts of India. Lots of footballers from the Northeast because the Northeast is very good in football, Manipur and other places, and Kerala as well, and, and Bengal. So there are certain states that are really good at it, but other states are also represented. So you will have sports people from the entire nation and they will all be doing well together. Imagine how well it will unify the nation whenever the, the team does well. So sports can be a great unifier. It, it can also provide lacks of jobs. So yeah, that's the importance of sports. And it's a, it's, a, it's a crying shame that the Indian government has for decades neglected sports and allowed sport sporting associations and federations to become deeply corrupted. I'm not going to name any, any particular organization. But yeah, we know what happens. Yeah, there are different sports some major sports, some not so major sports, but they all have their associations and federations. And many of them as has been have been alleged to be deeply corrupt. And that's uh, and who suffers as, as a result? It's the athletes that suffer. And it's, it's a nation that suffers. So yeah, that's how it is. And obviously we have our own sports like Kabaddi, like Koko and various martial arts and all, which have all been lost because of the foreign occupation of India in the past 1000 years. Some of the sports still exist, like Kabaddi. Kabaddi can become a worldwide phenomenon if we invest in, in it properly. And various other nations also play Kabaddi. Obviously, all the nations in the Indian subcontinent, including Iran, play Kabaddi well. I think Iran are the defending Asian Games champions in male as well as female Kabaddi. And they beat India in the finals in both these uh, disciplines, which was very... which was unfortunate. 
you know anyway anyway so the iranians play well kabaddi well the sri lankans also played the bangladeshis the pakistanis afghans i'm not sure but maybe they do also yeah so it's a subcontinental sport india and persia are the main powers but yeah if we had our own sports and we we have lost some of those we should revive them and we should invest in them it's great and it keeps society fit and healthy so that's an added bonus and benefit all right <clears throat> um kartik says your thoughts on alex pereira knocking out israel adesanya so he's talking about mma mixed martial arts the ufc the ultimate fighting championship in which in which weight class was it i don't remember light heavyweight perhaps so you had the brazilian alex pereira who knocked out israel adesanya who's from nigeria if i'm not mistaken and in adesanya is the defending was the defending champion and he was almost unbeatable and this guy from uh, from brazil who is an indigenous brazilian not you know not a transplant from europe so alex pereira is belongs to one of the brazilian indigenous tribes and he is a very good fighter he's a kickboxer adesanya is more like a mma fighter but uh, alex pereira is a is a kickboxer so he came into this fight it was a five round title match and in the last round he knocked out israel adesanya it was a stoppage and yeah it was great it was great to watch i was supporting alex pereira and i'm glad he won so yeah i'm not i don't know how many of you watch it but i am a fan of martial arts i watch ufc i watch mma uh, i watch uh, bilator if it's available and so on so yeah it's 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 good fun to watch uh, sorov says do you play chess what's your rating and what's your favorite opening i do not play chess anymore i used to play chess chess as a kid and as a teenager and the last serious chess game i played was more than 20 years ago more than 20 years ago so i no longer chess play chess and the reason is that chess is extremely time consuming i used to be good at chess but it is incredibly time consuming a, a single chess game game can take 2 3 hours and i don't have the kind of time so i that's why i quit chess i don't know if i had any rating i never played it at, at a elite level what was my favorite opening i think it was the ruy lopez queen's indian defense i'm not sure i don't know what it's called but yeah one of those was my favorite opening and yeah it was it was good good fun to play it so yeah chess is a, is a great game it's good for kids to develop their tactical nous and mental mental acuity and all that but it is incredibly time consuming so so that's the reason why I, why i have stopped playing chess and i have not played a serious chess game in more than 20 years okay let's take some live chat questions live chat questions do we have any questions if you have any questions i'll take a few um love martial arts yes i love martial arts too and as you know i also practice boxing not with opponents but against a bag punching bag it's fun it's a good it's a good way to stay fit and also strong okay let's take some questions about uh, or from the live chat is there anything okay karan says is there anything more to discover in mathematics i think there must be much much more to discover in mathematics um uh, there come there come phases in history when people believe they've discovered everything like in the late 19th century i think it was lord kelvin or whatever who said that we whatever we was to be discovered we've discovered and nothing more will come out he was talking about physics obviously and how wrong was he <laughs> so similarly for mathematics i am sure there is a lot more to discover yeah um 
How did Lalita Ditya Muktapita die? I'm not sure. No idea. Um, so much of what we know about Lalita Ditya Muktapita comes from the Raja Tarangini of Kalhana, who was a, a historian from, from Kashmir. And uh, not sure if if it mentions the the manner in which Lalita Ditya died. So yeah, maybe I will look into it and find out. But as far as I know, there is no information. As far as I know. Your view on FIFA World Cup by Qatar. Well, we know that this World Cup was awarded to Qatar as a reward for services rendered. Qatar is, is a US vassal. They do, I mean, you know, they offer certain services to the US, geopolitical services and various things. And 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 in in recognition of the services as and as a reward for for obedient service they have been given this world cup and it's going on right now it's not the best place for a world cup it's a very hot place and they have used almost what what you could consider to be slave labor to to build all those stadiums mainly people from bangladesh nepal even india some of them and so on the human rights situation there is terrible and all and uh, yeah so it's unfortunate that this nation that has no sporting tradition, no football tradition has been given the World Cup and I'm sure there are many more better deserving candidates but that's how it it happens, that's how it goes there is one nation that rules the world, it's the sole superpower and they they have they they control most of the organizations whether it is geopolitical organizations or sporting organizations and that's why they can get these things done and yeah, that's how it is so the World Cup is typically played not in winter, but this time it's in winter. And I think the, the English Premier League had to be re- rescheduled because the, the World Cup is being, being played in the, in the winter, autumn or whatever. So yeah, that's that's what I, that's that's my views about this. Andrei says, how to be strong? I expect you mean physically. If you want to be physically strong, lift weights, lift heavy weights. And if you have never lifted weights before, don't start with heavy weights, start with light weights. But if you want to be strong, you have to progress, progressively lift heavier and heavier weights. And once you start lifting respectable weights, like for instance, if you can deadlift 100 kilos, then you are then you are at a respectable level. Yeah. And you can consider, consider yourself to be strong. So to be strong, you have to lift weights and you have to lift heavy weights. But if you're a beginner, don't lift heavy weights. You, you will get injured. Start with light weights. But yeah, it's great fun. Lifting weights is great fun. So that's how you get strong, physically. Mentally, it's a whole different story. All right. Mr. Gegachar of India says, why do Western historians ignore India? Well, why do you ignore someone? Because you're you're jealous. Because see, the truth is that for the past three, four centuries, they have been portraying the West as the, as the fountainhead of civilization and the epitome of everything good and civilized in the world. And they know that the most ancient civilization and the most advanced civilization has always been India. And if they start not ignoring India, then their lies will be exposed. And that's why they ignore India. It's very simple. That's how it is. Uh, Which language does the Sinhalese language, Sinhal language belong to? Well, if you ask any modern linguist, they will say that it belongs to the Indo-Aryan language family, which means that it's not a southern Indian language. It's actually a language that has originated in northern India. That's what they would say. And if you 
listen to people speaking sinhalese it it sounds kind of like the marathi language kind of little bit to some extent and so on uh, it also does sound like tamil to some extent so yeah it's it's kind of like that but it is classified as an indo aryan language of course this entire uh, classification system of indian languages needs to be revisited ab initio this entire fakery of the dravidian language family i mean come on so yeah we need uh, to revisit indian linguistics ab initio all right all right i think we are at the end of today's session more than 2 hours as always so uh, thank you very much once again for your viewership and thank you very much to all of you uh, we have crossed 5 lakh subscribers on this channel it's all thanks to you i am extremely very grateful to all of you for your support for your viewership and we will continue this the channel is still in actually in its infancy i'm still figuring out what i want to do with the channel so thank you to all of you i am incredibly deeply profoundly grateful and we will continue this next week with next weekend's live streams until then take care all of you and i will see you very soon take care thank you bye